I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance, episode 81. And in this episode, we'll discuss about the concepts called bull traps and breakouts. Is this a bull trap? This is something that a lot of people have been discussing about on online forums, and I think it's worth looking into the concept of a bull trap. For those that are new to the channel, the aim of this channel is one, educate, two, empower, and three, entertain. Now, just a bit of a disclaimer. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you want to make after listening to my podcast to your appropriate advisors. Remember, I'm just a random doctor that's talking about personal finance online. If you're stuck on what to do, though, here are some simple steps that might get you in the right track when it comes to investing, saving, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside. That is your money that you've paid yourself. Step two, invest that money, ideally into something that you understand or want to understand. I just invest in index funds because I understand index funds and passive investing. Step three is to reinvest dividends. Now, the power of compounding is real. By reinvesting dividends, you are creating more income from the dividends in the long run. Step four, doing it for the long term. Long term doesn't mean five, seven, ten, or even 15 years. In my playbook, it means 20, 30, or hopefully 40 plus years. And step five, you got to automate your investments and you got to do it forever. Now, if you did that, you're likely to have more money than you'll ever need in your life when you retire. And remember, money is just a tool and it doesn't bring happiness but you can use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, to make the lives of people around you a lot better. Now, over the last week or so, I've had a couple of questions. The first question is people saying to me they feel anxious uh, about the market. It's been relatively volatile in the last sort of couple of weeks, uh, and this episode has been recorded um, on the 16th of June. And um, they feel like they need to do something with their money. Um, And uh, I've also had other questions about LICs and ETFs, which one's better. And on online forums, this question comes up a lot. So I thought I'd tackle these two questions before we go on to the main topic about bull traps and breakouts. Now, remember the aim of investing is to building wealth, is to increase your purchasing power. You want to be able to put the money away so that the money grows over time so that when you do need it later in life, you'll be able to access it and you can be able to have a same or increase your purchasing power. 
So sometimes when everyone is going crazy with the amount of volatility that's been happening in the markets recently, it makes sense to just stand still. So what does that mean? It just means if anything, if you don't want to keep buying shares or if you don't want to keep investing into investments that you understand or index funds or whatever investment that suits your understanding, then at least don't panic and don't sell off any of your investments because people are just going crazy. They're just reacting, buying, selling, buying, selling, buying, selling. If you don't want to buy anything, at least don't sell what you have. Um, so sometimes not doing anything is the most important thing. And often people find in these circumstances, as one particular person texted me and said, they feel like they can't stand still. They feel like they need to invest money. They need to take advantage of this market. They need to take advantage of the volatility. Now, that's all fair and good, but you need to be able to understand volatility and you need to be able to understand what you're investing in. Don't just put money into things you don't understand, even though it's volatile. And remember, volatility can be used to your advantage if you understand the benefits of volatility. So this sort of thing about, you know, staying still or standing still and not doing anything or just not interacting or not actually actioning anything during a time of crisis or a time of need also applies to the field of medicine. For all you medical doctors out there, I'm sure you understand what I mean. Sometimes when a patient comes in with vague symptoms, I'm not able to diagnose them. I don't really know what's going on because the symptoms are not really that urgent. They're very vague. That doesn't mean that they don't have a diagnosis. It just means that I've been able to figure it out based on the clinical context. Um, it might be worthwhile in that situation just watching and waiting. Sometimes watching and waiting is the best course of action that you can take. So one of three things can happen when you do that in a clinical scenario. Patient either gets more symptoms and therefore the disease kind of declares itself um, and you're able to make a diagnosis. Or the symptoms just completely disappear and they realize that after a few hours everything is fine and they feel better and that's it. Or their symptoms stay the same, they don't get worse or they don't get any better, but that requires more investigating as well. And this all depends on the symptoms and signs and seriousness, of course. Okay, so if someone comes in with chest pain, uh, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't put them in the watch and wait category because, you know, chest pain is potentially life-threatening. That needs to be sorted out. Often if you go to emergency departments, they take it very, very seriously because it could be a heart attack. But if you have a look at a child that comes in with tummy pain, for example, there's a very common presentation that happens in emergency departments and in GP clinics and in specialist clinics all the time. Tummy pain in children can be a perforated appendicitis, or it could just be passing wind. So, uh, you know, sometimes admitting them or just keeping them in the ED or the clinic um, and just watching them closely and see how they go with their symptoms is all that's required to be done. The last thing you want to do is put a child through an appendicitis operation, which is completely unnecessary in most cases. So, the same sort of principles apply to investing and personal finance. So the greatest investor, for example, Warren Buffett, is sitting on $130 billion in cash and not doing anything about it. Um, so sometimes watching and waiting patiently uh, and not doing anything um, or at least keep buying is the best course of action. Um, so whatever you do, 
don't get cold feet and sweats and things and start selling your assets, um, which a lot of people have tended to do, you know, putting assets, you know, selling off their shares and buying more gold or putting it under the mattress in cash or in the bank account. I just don't think that's necessary. Um, in 20, 30 years time, you're going to look back at this and go, yes, it's been a very volatile situation. 2020 will go down in history as one of the most volatile uh, years in terms of share market in 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 recent history. But that's okay. I think sometimes doing nothing is the best course of action. And that's certainly true in other aspects of life, for example, medicine. The second question that I've had is people sort of asking, okay, we've talked about ETFs, we've talked about index funds, we've talked about broad market strategies in terms of investments. What about LRCs? I mean, it seems to be a very common topic online. It comes up on Facebook forums and Reddit and all these online forums. So I want to clarify the differences between LICs and ETF index funds. And it's a very common question that I get. And just to reiterate, there is no one best investment. It really depends on how you want to structure your investing style and how you are as a personality and how you want to go about your retirement strategy. Okay. So I think, I think a lot of people get really, really flustered trying to find the best investment, trying to find the best time to invest. You know, I want to maximize everything to the core. Now, in theory, that works. In practice, it doesn't. Uh, and like I said, did you wake up on the 1st of January 2020 thinking that 2020 is going to be COVID-19 year? Um, I didn't. Um, I didn't wake up and think the whole world was potentially going to end. And unfortunately, hundreds of thousands of people will die from a global pandemic. I certainly didn't do that. And if you did think about it, then good on you. But most people didn't. I know later on in January, when Australia had one of the first cases of COVID, people weren't worried. We were still not social distancing. We were still shopping. We were still going, you know, on holidays. We were still, you know, patients were still being seen face-to-face without masks on in emergency departments all over Australia and, and clinics, and no one really got flustered, but then things got worse. So no one knows the future. So, um, uh, so let's, let's, clarify, let's clarify the... Um, the differences then between LICs and ETFs. Now, I've discussed each of these types of investments in detail, um, index funds versus ETFs in episode 33. So go back and have a listen to that if you're interested. And LICs, which means listed investment companies in episode 36. So if you're interested in that, go back and listen to that episode as well. That goes into very, very detailed uh, analysis of those types of investments. So we're just going to summarize it um, because it's a common question that I get asked, and, and, and I do see it online quite a lot. The fundamental difference between the ETFs and LICs is the structure of the investments, okay, the legal structure. ETFs um, are unit trusts, whereas LICs are companies. LICs are companies that take your money and invest in other companies. And usually when they invest in other companies, though the, those other companies are also listed. Um, ETFs are designed to track a particular index. So, for example, the VAS, which is via Vanguard, tracks the ASX 300 index in Australia. LICs, on the other hand, are companies listed on the ASX and they have a fund manager which uses your money to invest in other companies. So you're buying shares in that listed investment company 
you're not really investing in the individual companies that that LIC may hold. And that's a fundamental difference that you need to think about. Now, a lot of people associate ETFs as being passive investing. Now, are ETFs always passive? Uh, no, they're not. Um, they're not always passive. Um, I do remember in medical school when a question has always in it, it's almost never correct. Uh, and that seems to extrapolate into other areas of life. If someone says always or never, um, it's always a bit of a red flag. Um, it's a bad joke because I use the word always. But anyway... Um, there are various subtypes of ETFs. Um, so there's active ETFs now, so where they try and outperform the index, which um, come with high level of risk and possibly high management fee. There's passive indices, uh, ETFs, which return similar to the index that it tracks, tries to mimic the index. So I just passively invest and I just invest in the Vanguard ASX 300 wholesale index fund. Easy, simple, effective, cheap. Um, there are currency and commodity ETFs, uh, which gain exposure to alternative investments like forex trading, energy and agricultural products. There are leveraged ETFs, and I've talked about leverage in detail in previous episodes, probably worthwhile going back and listening to that if you're not sure. But leveraged ETFs are basically using derivatives, which um, are basically bets. Uh, there are also inverse ETFs designed to move in the opposite direction to the market. So, for example, during COVID, when markets crashed, inverse ETFs move higher and you make money as a result. There are industry ETFs, which track particular industries, specifically tech, banking, finance, agriculture, etc. There are bond ETFs, there are dividend ETFs, there are SRI ETFs, which is socially responsible investing ETFs, international ETFs, smart beta ETFs, listed property ETFs, and many, many more. So you get the idea. ETFs are not just one single investment. There's actually broad categories of ETFs across the spectrum. Now, listed investment companies, on the other hand, they're usually almost always active investors, okay? Because you're giving your money to this company to invest in other companies. Um, LRCs have an internal management um, uh, uh, internal management team, and they have an external management team for the company. And the aim for the LIC is to outperform the market, okay? So most LICs in Australia are actually quite low cost. So in terms of cost, they're quite comparable to ETFs and index funds, so that's good. Um, but of course, there are various types of LICs. There's LICs that only invest in Australian companies. There are LICs that only invest in international companies. Um, LICs that only invest in unlisted companies, which are not listed in the ASX stock exchange. There are LICs that invest in special assets such as wineries, tech companies, infrastructure, and or property. So again, LICs are not just one specific type of investment. They have broad subcategories as to the type of LICs that exist. Now, in terms of management style, ETFs are usually passive. Most ETFs are considered passive investments, but not always. Whereas LICs rely on managers to select certain listed companies and other investments. And the aim here is to outperform the market, whereas the ETFs basically meet the market returns. So this is called active investing. So I guess the biggest difference in terms of structure and in terms of philosophy is that LICs are more active, ETFs are more passive. So if you fundamentally wouldn't actively invest... Uh, and you're a passive investor, then maybe LICs 
may not be for you from a philosophical fundamental investing strategy standpoint. Now, the investment types. Now, as previously discussed, ETFs are very broad and track whatever index um, uh, that they track, uh, and they're designed to track that index. VAS, for example, tracks the ASX 300, uh, which is the 300 companies across every sector in Australia, and it's based on market capitalization and market capitalization weighted. LICs mostly invest in Australian companies that are listed on the ASX. So some LICs also give exposure to small caps and other asset classes, but most LICs have Australian positions. The most, When I say most, I'm talking about the big ones like Milton and Argo and Whitefield, etc. But you need to look into the exact um, you know, asset classes that they might hold into. But generally speaking, they tend to invest in Australian companies. So if you want to invest in global markets or emerging markets, maybe LICs may not be for you. So again, not every LIC is only Australian. You need to look at the specific LIC and what securities and investments they hold within that company. And it really depends on the LIC. So we've covered structure, we've covered investment type, we've covered investment style, we've covered categories. What about taxation? Now, ETFs are unit trusts. So just going back to my episode on trust, if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. Essentially, how trusts work is Whatever money is made gets distributed to the beneficiaries and gets taxed at the individual level. So if you're an individual, tax rate um, is relatively high, then the ETF method might mean that your taxation is high. If your individual tax rate is low, then you might actually benefit from an ETF structure. Now, dividend income or distributions income, again, I've talked about dividends versus distributions. They're not the same thing. With ETFs, they must distribute them to the holders of the ETFs, okay? There's no other option. This includes any capital gains. They can't withhold it. They can't put it back into the ETF because, remember, the ETF is not actually the company. You're just basically tracking the index. LICs use a company structure. We talked about the company structure earlier, and this is why structure is very important when it comes to investment. Now, company tax rates in Australia are lower than individual rates, Base rate entities, which are basically businesses that have a tax rate of 27.5% um, because their turnover is less than $25 million. But most Australian companies, big companies, pay a tax rate of about 30%, which is just a flat tax. So the biggest advantage with LICs because of the company structure is any dividend or capital gains need not be distributed back to the LIC shareholders. The LIC can choose to hold on to their winnings and then reinvest it into their business so if they choose to distribute to their shareholders, though, they will get franking credits and the shareholders must pay tax at their marginal rate. So the biggest difference here is that ETS, you kind of have to realise those um, dividend income and also those, those um, capital gains, whereas with LICs, you may not have to realise that because they can withhold it um, and keep it within the business and then invest it back into their business. The cost of investment. Now, that's a really, really important. Now... I get a little bit worried when people focus only on the cost of investment. So, you know, if it's really, really cheap to invest, doesn't mean that it's the best investment to make. Now, I'm all for low-cost investing. I think low-cost investing is the best thing because the more money that you keep, the more money you'll have in the long term. So why pay in fees? But just don't focus on fees. Uh, you need to focus on the type of investment. 
So, you know, if you have an investment that has very low fees, but it's just a very bad investment, it doesn't really matter what the fees are. You're not going to make any money. You're not going to create any income. You're not going to have any capital gains from that investment. But I think when it comes to LICs and ETFs, it's important to talk about fees. ETFs are very cheap, mostly, but you need to watch out for those hidden fees like brokerage fees and uh, especially for the active ETFs. Um, So, for example, the Vanguard VAS management fee is 0.1%. So it's basically a dollar for every $1,000 invested. Now, for ETFs, there isn't any outperformance fee um, because most ETFs are passive and they just meet the market performance. Um, So you're not going to outperform the market. That's something that you have to get used to. Whereas LICs can also be very cheap. So um, uh, the, the, the main LIC is the AFIC, which is Australian Foundation Investment Company, which has a you know uh, investment uh, management fee of 0.14%. Argo is 0.15%. Milton is 0.13%. These may not be completely accurate at the time of recording, but you know what I'm saying. You need to go back and check the fees. But the thing is, you need to check if there's an outperformance fee of any of those companies. So this is critical. So some of the LICs have something called outperformance fee, where if they beat the market, then they'll charge additional fees. And overall, because of the fees, you don't beat the market, which is the irony behind fees. So although looking at fees alone is not a great idea, um, the fee structure for LICs and ETFs is actually pretty good. I mean, most of the LICs and ETFs are actually quite low cost. The other structural thing about ETFs and LICs is open versus closed-ended investments, and I think that's really important to understand. So ETFs are what's called open-ended investments. This means that units can be created based on how many people buy and sell. There is no end to this. So similarly, units can be sold as much as possible. The share price of the ETF is not affected because of the creation and selling and buying of those units. LICs, on the other hand, are closed-ended. This means that they have a fixed number of shares issued, and this may increase over time, depending on whether they want to issue more shares, and shares are not created as more people buy them. This means you may not be able to buy them all the time. But the reality is people are buying and selling LIC shares all the time, so the chances are you will be able to trade them. You'll be able to buy and sell them, but it doesn't create new shares to be able to buy the shares in the LICs. So that's called a closed-ended investment. Um, and when you, when you, that, that concept is called liquidity, um, where the LICs tend to have lower liquidity when it comes to uh, comparison to ETFs. So that's important to understand. So the question is, what's the best, which one is better? And like I said before, it's not about which one is better. It's not as easy as that. It all depends on your core philosophy of investing. LIC advocates will say that ETFs and index funds are great when markets do well. But during market downturns, they will just follow the herd and end up in the negative territory. And look at COVID. I've lost a lot of money as a result of COVID because I'm an indexer. This is a fair observation and completely true. Because when you invest in ETFs and index funds, you're not trying to beat the market. You're just meeting the market performance. Index funds are cheap, but that's one of the downfalls. You can't beat the market. LICs, on the other hand, may take advantage of volatility and try and beat the market because they're more active in terms of their investment philosophy. Index and ETF advocates will argue that um, LICs have more concentrated assets. Uh, 
less transparent, they're less liquid, and given that there are more bull markets than bear markets, overall you're better off with index funds and ETFs. That's what the index funders will say. So there is no best investment. Every investment is an element of opportunity cost. And at this stage, you might want to read up on what opportunity cost is or refer to my episode 18 when I've talked about it in detail. So I hope this clarifies the two main questions, ETFs versus LICs, and also I get anxious, I need to do something with my money. And hopefully this clarifies the main differences between ETFs and LICs as well. Now to the main topic. Um, Sorry for the really long intro, but I thought... I'd clarify that because that is probably one of the most common questions that I get. Now, the main topic is, what is a bull trap and are we in one? So what is a bull trap? This is when markets initially crash and then drives investors to buy more stock because they think everything is on the cheap and more buying activity spurs the stocks to rise again. This creates investor enthusiasm and the stock rises and rises and people think it's going to go above the breakout level. Now, we'll talk a little bit about breakout level a bit later in the episode. So this is the previous high. Then paradoxically, what happens is the stock reverses the trend and the starts to lose value, which spurs more selling. So the investor who rode the mini bull market gets trapped as their position is long, that is, they're a long-term investor, and therefore start to incur rapid losses. That is, buyers run out and fail to support the bull market. Often such investors don't have any risk management strategies like stop-loss orders, and we'll talk a little bit about that later in the episode. Whereas a smarter investor may wait until what's called a breakout happens, up-breakout or down-breakout, and then purchase the stock at a discount to its actual value. And I've talked about value investing in terms of looking at metrics for individual stocks. So go back and listen to the PE and PB ratio episodes. So I've used the term breakout. Now, before we go on to talk about bull traps and things, I think it's worthwhile clarifying what is a breakout. What does it mean financially? I'm going to try and explain it as simply as possible for the layperson. This is something I've only learnt relatively recently because of the volatility when I looked at it. It's a concept that came again and again and again. So what is a breakout? If you have a look at the graph of any stock price or even the index, You will notice a lot of ups and downs, but generally over the long term, you may find that indices and stocks generally rise, provided they're fundamentally good companies and good indices. A breakout is when the stock price or index starts to rise above a set limit. Now, this may or may not be the 52-week high. When this happens, other investors get on the bandwagon and they start buying and trading more stocks. This means prices tend to rise. More demand supply is limited. So when the stock market goes up, people get enthusiastic. They get happy. They want to buy. They want in on the action. They go on the bandwagon. This creates a potential situation of a breakout. The same thing can happen when things start to go south. Stocks and indices underperform and reach levels which trigger a lot of selling, which drives a snowball effect and then drives down prices more and more. Let's use an example. Let's look at what happened in the last three to six months in the ASX. On the 20th of Feb 2020, S&P ASX 200 was at its highest level at 71.62 points. Those were the days. 26th of Feb 2020, the S&P ASX 200 started to fall, and now it was 6,700 points. So we've lost about 460 points 
in about six days. The trend line for that week was down, and this could be signaling a breakout. This time the breakout is happening, people are starting to sell. If you're a short seller, this is a dream come true. You want to borrow more shares and sell them with the hope that the market will continue its downward trend. So later on, you can buy the shares and return it to the person whom you borrowed it from. Now, I've talked about short selling in previous episodes, so go back and listen to it if you're interested. Now, if you detect this breakout, you could sell your shares, which you wanted to hold a long position in the hope that you make a quick buck, and wait for the market to tumble to re-enter the market again. This is timing the market, classical. So by the 5th of March, let's see what happened here. By the 5th of March 2020, the ASX 200 reached another low point, 6,395 points. Then things got worse. Between the 6th of March and the 23rd of March, the market crashed and reached its lowest point, 4,546 points. So literally in two weeks' time, from 5th of March to the 23rd of March, we lost almost 2,500 points. Hopefully, if you're a trader, you recognize this trend early and made a lot of money by selling early and buying later. By the 26th of March, the market risen back up to 5,100 points and you start to think another breakout is happening, this time on the uptrend. And this time, it's going upwards. You start buying more stocks and enter the market again. And by 14th of April, it's reached 5,488 points. By 30th of April, it's reached 5,522 points. And before you know it, by the 10th of June, it's reached another high in months, 6,148 points. Then market starts to run off puffs and starts selling again and losses almost 300 points in two days. And I just checked the market before I did this episode, which is recorded on the 16th of June. And the market's up by almost 4% today. So it's all over the shop. So I guess in a downward breakout, how do you protect your downside? And this is where we talk about stop loss orders. This is when you can put an order in your brokerage account, which basically means the minute the stock falls to this particular price, you cut your losses and sell off the security. Likewise, you can also put an order which buys a security which reaches a certain price to ensure you capitalize on its low point. So these are automated trades using a brokerage firm and there is money sitting there ready to go. So you put the money into the broker and then you put a stop loss order. The aim of stop loss orders is to ensure the investor minimizes their losses in the event of a downward breakout and rapid fire sale, precisely what happened during COVID in March 2020. If you had a stop loss order in March 2020, you would have sold your shares then and then you would have bought it by mid-March. Once a stop-loss order is triggered, it becomes what's known as a market order and the trade is executed at the next available price. So the traded price may be different to the stop-loss order price, and this is really important to understand. So let's use an example of this. Back to Amy's Pristine Lemon Juice Company. Its share price is trading at $5 per share. Things are pretty good. But then COVID comes and Amy's business has lost a lot of money and is not making a profit. And this has resulted in the share price to fall to a dollar. So it's lost about 75, oh, sorry, lost about 80% of its value. Suppose you bought 100 shares for $500 initially, and at that time to put a stop loss order at about $400, due to COVID, the stock price plunges by 50%, for example. And when the stock, remi- when the stock market reopens, you don't sell it at the $400, you sell it at $250, you've just lost 50%. One of the disadvantages of this is that it only sells when the next available time, not exactly when the share price reaches down to $400 in total value. So if the markets don't plunge, 
then it might work out reasonably well. Or, you know, you might end up selling at $375 or $395 and something very close to the stop-loss order itself. Now, you don't need to set a stop-loss order as a price. It can also be set at a percentage, and this technique is called a trailing stop-loss order. So what does it all mean? What does a breakout tell you? What happens when you detect a breakout? So what? What does it actually tell you? Well, think about a breakout like a line in the sand. This imaginary line in investments is where traders set their price targets at. Once that line is sand is once that line of the sand is reached, some traders hop on for the ride, but others exit like it's the play because they're too scared. If you have more buyers than sellers, it sets a mini bull run. If you have more sellers than buyers, it sets a mini bear run. This brings me to the next concept called volume of trades. If the volume of trades are high, this signals to traders something big is happening and they start paying attention. If the volume of trades are small, it may not create much attention and the majority of traders may ignore this. Just like a snowball effect, you would think high volume activity will create a flurry, which will create more breakouts. Low volume activity will not create much of a snowball and therefore is likely to fizzle out. So if it fizzles out, the breakout is not sustained, and then stocks may fall or rise back to their usual levels. Now, traders study charts and notice specific patterns. And they notice patterns of breakouts called triangles, head and shoulders, wedges, flags, etc. It's an interesting concept if you want to go and do your own research on the types of charts which may signal a breakout. Uh, Even for me, I think looking at those charts, I try to understand it, but it's way too geeky. But the biggest take-home message about breakouts is that you need to watch the volume of trading during breakout periods to get a good idea on whether the breakout will last or fizzle out. And prior to that, you need to know what a breakout is. Now back to bull traps. I'll go into the detail about the anatomy of a bull trap. Looking at the market recently in comparison to March, some people think we are in a bull trap because the market has risen reasonably quickly since March, really. April, May, June, I mean, in three months, we've, we've made up significant gains. How does this happen? Let's go into the detail of a anatomy of a bull trap. Now, after March, buyers have been in control. So they've kept buying because things have been very, very cheap. So there's more demand, which pushes prices higher and higher. But after about eight or 10 weeks, buyers have started to run out of steam or run out of resources, so to speak. Remember, at one point, we went back above 6,000 points. Then last week, it crashed significantly. This creates a situation called a resistance level. And the market starts to hover at a mark and it doesn't break out yet. It's trying to break out, but it's not quite there. It is resisting to move higher. The price starts to slow down. And some traders realize this, realize something is about to happen, and sell off their long positions and take the profit home. Other traders don't realize this and start buying again. And now it pushes the prices higher, beyond the resistance level. This is now the line in the sand, and this now creates an upward breakout. More buyers see this and have no idea what's going to happen and continue to buy, further pushing the prices higher. The smart sellers now close off their sales more and profit from their long positions because they're getting suspicious. This is a sustained breakout. Something is going to happen. Is this a bull trap? This creates an imbalance. More sellers compared to buyers. 
so they sell more. And this triggers stop-loss orders and creates more sellers. Now the breakout is happening the other way. You've gone up, now it's coming down again. By this time, the buyers who thought the market was going up and bought in, and who don't have stop-loss orders or have wide stop-loss orders, too far from buy price, they get trapped in their long positions. This is officially called a bull trap. Now the tide has turned from the bull to a bear market trapping the long position buyers. So hopefully that makes sense about the anatomy of a bull trap. Now, essentially what I've done by talking about a bull trap is potentially talk people out of investing. Don't buy now because it's a bull trap. Well, I don't really care because I'm not looking at the next 6 to 12 months. I'm looking at the next 30 years. So I'm continuing to buy even today. I've put some more money in because today is Tuesday. I always invest on a Tuesday. I've automated it so that money from the bank just go straight into my Vanguard account. Now, when you look at trading graphs, um, it's important to understand, um, you know, you might have heard of the term called candlestick patterns. Um, And candlestick patterns uh, are an interesting concept. And and there are some specific patterns in the um, share market which can potentially resemble bull traps. So I guess what are candlesticks? Uh, This is the type of graph you can see a trader use. Uh, You might have seen it um, uh, particularly uh, online, on YouTube, where they use, you know, rectangular shapes and have little sticks um, uh, which represent candles. Uh, There are two colors mainly used, red and green, and the body of the candlestick can be filled or unfilled. Um, And it has specific meanings, and it's better explained in a YouTube video, so you might want to watch it. Just Google, uh, sorry, just YouTube candlesticks, and you'll get a bit of an idea about what it means when it's filled and unfilled. And when you look at the candlestick patterns when it comes to bull trap, there's actually quite a few patterns. Um, It's called rejected double top, bearing engulfing, failed retest. These are all very specific graph patterns which may signal an upcoming bull trap. Now... If you're really into that sort of stuff and if you're an active investor, you might want to go and research about it. I don't actively invest, so I can't be bothered. Um, Now, remember that I've talked bull traps in the setting of price reductions and price increases. Traditionally, bull traps happen after a very long bull market like the one we've had for many years just before COVID-19 hits our shores. Okay, so that's about it for bull traps. So we've covered quite a bit in this. We've talked about ETFs and LICs, major differences. We've talked about the nervous investor who wants to get in on the bandwagon and you know want to do something with their money, and sometimes doing nothing with your money is the best thing, and don't sell your assets. Uh, we've talked about bull traps. What are they? We've talked about volume of trades and how they affect breakouts, upward and downtrend. We've talked about stop-loss orders. What are they? And we've talked about charts, specifically candlesticks in brief. You might want to go and do some more research about it. Look, in reality, no one really knows if this is a bull trap or not. Experts who think they know where the market is headed are likely to be wrong, and some of them will be right. Now, if you're calling a market crash every single year for the rest of your life, you're going to be right at some point. Even a clock that doesn't work is correct twice a day. I'm long on everything. I keep investing. Like, I'm really long, 40 years plus long. I've already been investing for 10 years. This is my 11th year. I'm not going to stop now. I don't intend to sell anything, and hopefully the income generated is enough to live off when I do retire. The best money I've made when I looked at my portfolio uh, quite recently and looked at, you know, 
the downs and, and the ups. One of the best monies that I've made by consistently investing was in March and April. Um, it's just making money for jam, for doing nothing, and just taking advantage of dollar cost averaging and volatility. Why would I miss it? Because I want to average my price down as much as I possibly can. In fact, I don't want the market to go up. I want the market to go down for the next, you know, whatever number of years. So that's bull traps. Um, thank you very much for your questions and comments. It This one particularly made me think through bull traps. Bull traps, beg your pardon. Um, there's a fair bit of tech analysis in there and, and, and it's actually quite complicated and, and it's actually good that I understood it myself. I, I, I sort of heard about the concept, but to actually go into the anatomy of it was very interesting. Now, remember to like Devraga Facebook page. If you've been invited to like it, please click the like button. That helps the Facebook algorithm. Um, shout out to the questions and comments that I get every day, and thank you for the topic suggestions. Share this channel with family and friends through castbox.fm app or Spotify or Google Podcast or devraga.com. Sharing the channel is the best reward you can give me. So thank you very much. In addition to positive feedback, of course, but I'm also looking for negative feedback or things which can be improved on this podcast. So thank you very much for those that have done that already. I'll try and do your suggestions as best as I possibly can with a double full-time job. And remember, always pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside and start investing and learn about bull traps, learn about personal finance, but really, if you're a long-term investor who invests regularly, which is automated, which is what I practice and preach, do bull traps really matter? Probably not. This is Devraka Personal Finance, Episode 81. And as always, please stay safe. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.